Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week, I'm talking with Emily Bray, an animal behavior postdoctoral researcher at the University of Arizona and Canine Companions for Independence. Emily's area of interest is canine cognition, and she specifically studies the effects of different styles of maternal care on the adult personalities of dogs. In other words, how does how your mom treats you affect who you will grow up to be? In this episode, Emily and I talk about what's known about maternal care generally in animals and people before diving into her studies in dogs and what she learned from them. I loved nerding out with Emily about one of my favorite topics and getting some behind-the-scenes looks at what it's like doing these studies. So, Emily, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So, let's see. We generally start out, even before talking about people's credentials or any of that stuff, asking about the really important questions, the dogs that you live with. And I checked ahead of time to make sure you do have one. Thank God I had a recent guest who only had cats, and that was just traumatic for everybody. But tell us about your dog. Yeah, so I grew up with Labrador Retrievers, uh, but I currently live with an extremely happy and sassy Golden Retriever Bernese Mountain Dog mix. Um, And so she was actually my husband's dog before we met, and he always jokes that she's the reason I even talked to him in the first place. Um, But she is an incredible dog. She has the world's best temperament, uh, but she is also somewhat of a medical miracle. Uh, So when she was five months old, she actually stopped being able to walk because she had severe hip dysplasia. And since she's a large breed, my husband took her to three different veterinarians uh, before one of them agreed to perform a bilateral um, femoral head asectomy rather Mm -hmm. than putting her down. Uh, And I am so glad that he persisted because she's done really amazing. So she is super bouncy. People are always shocked when we tell her tell them about her hips. Um, but uh, in January, she's going to be 12 years old. So she's done really well with it. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm going to have to after this, I'm going to have to ask you for a photograph because I would love to oh, see 100%. it. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Golden Retriever burner mix. That sounds adorable. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So I asked you on because you have a very cool research topic, which is basically maternal care and maternal effects in dogs. So I guess I'm trying to think whether I should ask first, how did you get into that? Or how did you get into research in general? Did you, so did you, when you started your PhD program, did you know that this was what you wanted to do? Yes. Uh, but I did not know that I wanted to do this, uh, when I went to college, I guess. Right. So I think my interest was first, I knew I was interested in dogs. My parents are both veterinarians. Uh, Now my brother and his wife are veterinarians too. So I've sort of been surrounded by animals my whole life. Um, But you escaped, you escaped having to go to veterinary school. Good for you. I know, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny. My family makes fun of me because I was always like, I don't know, like 
veterinary school, it's like so much science. And now I do science all day. <laughs> My parents are like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so yeah, so I, when I went to, so I went to undergrad and they had actually just started a um, canine cognition center. Uh, so I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. My friend uh, was their first lab manager and she was like, I think you should volunteer. I think you would be really interested in this. Um, and you know, I missed my, my dog at home. So I was like, what better way <laughs> to spend my time. Uh, and then it turned out uh, that I could do research. And so I did an undergraduate thesis. Uh, I studied inhibitory control in pet dogs. Um, and my senior year, they started a project with Canine Companions for Independence, which is an assistance dog school out on the West Coast, which we'll probably talk more about later because spoiler alert, I work there now. <laughs> um, but so as an undergraduate, I was able to fly out and meet these service dogs. I was so impressed. Um, when I first met them, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the Stepford wives of you know, the dog world. Uh, but then it was really cool because when we started working with them, there were so many differences, even in this you know, highly selected population um, in terms of their personality and their problem solving. Uh, so I was just totally hooked. Um, and I applied to grad school. Uh, so, and I, I knew that I wanted to continue in animal research and, and specifically I would love if I could continue researching dogs. Um, so, so yeah, I, then I went to grad school at the University of Pennsylvania uh, and my, it was pretty cool. When I was at Duke, the amazing thing about the Duke Canine Cognition Center is that I got all of this great training in how to do cognitive tasks in dogs. Uh, so I got to work with Dr. Brian Hare, uh, as well as Dr. Evan McLean. Uh, and it was it was really fun to do these experiments um, in a lab setting. And then I went to grad school at the University of Pennsylvania, and I worked with uh, Dr. Robert Seiferth and Dr. Dorothy Cheney. And that was amazing because they actually are not dog researchers. They studied vervet monkeys and baboons in Kenya for 30 years. Uh, so they knew a lot about observation and animal behavior. Um, and so it was really great to get, get that viewpoint as well. And actually my, my first summer, they said, if you're gonna study animal behavior, you have to go to Africa. Uh, and so I got to go um, study spotted hyenas for the summer. Uh, which is actually where I first became interested wow. in maternal care. <laughs> the graduate student I was working with, uh, we would get up early in the mornings and, and go out late at night to the dens and watch the mothers nurse their cubs. Hyenas normally have about uh, two infants at a time. Uh, and there's a dominant and a submissive nursing position. So we would record all of this information on hyena nursing. And, you know, as I'm sitting there watching hours of hyena nursing, I'm like, I don't think I know anything about this in dogs. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. <laughs> wow. I, so the dominant and submissive nursing position, is that, that the, that the mom has different positions or that the babies do? The babies do. So the, the dominant cub would have the better nursing position. I see. I guess I, yeah, I probably phrased that wrong. Um, but yeah, there's no, like that, a- No, that makes sense that the dominant one gets the access to more milk probably, right? Yes, which is interesting yes. though, because I don't, I don't get the impression that that is the case in dogs, that there is a better position necessarily. Um, and there's also just so many more of them, so. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of nipples. I don't know if it's, 
Is it true in dogs? I think it is in cats that they have particular nipples, that each baby has their particular nipple. Is that true in dogs as well? No, no, it's not. I talked to um, Julie Hecht about this because yeah. she, she, she is interested in it as well because it's a thing in cats, but I don't think it's a thing in dogs, at least not that I've seen. And I've watched a lot of nursing videos. <laughs> yeah. I tried to, um, well, I successfully fostered a little several hour old kitten onto a litter of kittens that were like a week old. Um, okay. And he picked a nipple that was already taken and he and the one week old kitten got into a fight over the nipple in which they were both it was like a girl fight where they were both whacking each other in the face with their paws that did not have claws yet and i'm sitting there i was like you're an hour old dude (laughs) it was amazing (laughs) oh my god yeah that sounds more like a hyena than a dog (laughs) interaction yeah yeah um yeah, so, okay, so then you got into maternal care in dogs, and that was, so the way I first encountered you was through some very cool papers that you published, and those were part of your PhD, you said. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was working with CCI, Canine Companions for Independence, as well, I believe. That was actually not, so it's confusing. So I was... Oh, yeah? I was working with Canine Companions at Duke, but then when I went to Penn, uh, I actually started working with the CNI. Uh, so the same organization uh, Dr. Eldon Layton worked for, I believe he was a guest on your podcast recently. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I actually, one of, so I, I worked with Dr. Seiferth and Dr. Cheney, but I also worked with Dr. James Serple, uh, who was at the Penn Vet School. And he had previously done research with the seeing eye with his Seabark, uh, which again, I believe has been covered on your podcast. Um, and so he'd worked with the CNI as well as some other large, you know, um, assistance dog organizations. And so when I started graduate school, we drove out to the CNI and had a conversation with them uh, that we were interested in, in studying uh, maternal behavior, but also just, you know, their behavior in general and, and looking to see, you know, kind of always the, the hot question in in the working dog world of how we can predict success and and what factors we can be looking for. Um, So yeah, so it happens that the CNI campus, so they have their Morristown campus, and that's where the dogs are trained and the people go to be matched with the dogs. And then they also, about 30 minutes away, have a breeding station in Chester. Um, and that's where all of their litters are whelped, uh, which makes for an amazing observational opportunity <laughs> uh, from a research perspective. So so it, it made a lot of sense that, that we could do this work at the CNI because, you know, it's a two-hour drive. Um, I should say at this point, too, I always like to shout out to the undergraduates that help me in all of my research. And so a lot of the research that I'm talking about today would not have been possible without them. There were five Penn undergraduate women and one from Franklin and Marshall. Um, and they would drive out with me, you know, so it's like close enough to be driving distance, but still kind of far. And so we, um, often would spend multiple days there because it didn't make sense to do the drive back and forth. Uh, but yeah, so that was great. Yeah, I have a, um, the laboratory where I work has a similar relationship with Guiding Eyes for the Blind. So I know exactly what you mean about Uh, like, well, it's not that bad, but sometimes you, you, sometimes you spend the night. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So then you started studying maternal effects. Um, but 
in order to put that into context, it might make some sense for us to take a step back before we talk about what you did and what you saw and talk about some of the research that has gone before. Um, and one of the things that's very cool about Emily's research is that she has done it in dogs specifically, but there's a lot of work that has been done on species that are a little bit easier to study, uh, rats specifically. Yeah. So, so what, what were you, so do you maybe want to give an overview of those rat studies and sort of like what, how you understood them to be like what they were, how they were setting your foundations and what they were setting you up to expect to see in dogs? Yes. Um, so there have been a lot of studies of, of early maternal care in rats uh, and mice, I believe, rodents broadly. Um, and right, it's great because the generation time is much smaller uh, than in dogs. And basically what they find is that when you observe these, these rats, they do this behavior um, called licking, grooming, and arched back nursing. Um, and so right? That's sort of what it sounds like. They're licking their pups um, and they're nursing them, kind of standing over them. And it provides a lot of tactile... Easy, easy milk bar access. Exactly. Uh, and it gives them a lot of tactile stimulation. And so you can sort of categorize these rats as either high licking grooming or low licking grooming. And it turns out that based on... Um, the licking grooming status of the mother, the 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 rat offspring um, have certain outcomes. So basically, the the mothers that are prone to high levels of licking grooming and archback nursing tend to produce these offspring that have what we would consider better outcomes. So they're less fearful, less anxious. Um, the thing that I'm really interested in is you actually even see cognitive. Uh, differences in the rats. And so they're better problem solvers, for example, um, you know, on like the little maze tasks that they're giving them. Um, and so, and, and, and the other thing that has been done a lot in rats um, is sort of the other side of that scale. So basically, if you separate a mother from her pups for a long amount of time, that is going to then be detrimental uh, to all sorts of down the road outcomes. Um, and so, and we see this in primates as well. Um, however, there has been some interesting work where if you sort of manipulate the length of the separation, so, so right, like if, if the, uh, you know, it's like 24 hours, or whatever, that's, that's bad because, you know, the pups need their mother, but if it's these shorter separations, um, sometimes that actually leads to better outcomes, which is interesting. And I think one, there's sort of different hypotheses for as this, why that might be. One idea is that if you do these short separations and then put them back together, it sort of induces the mother to then, you know, lick and groom and do all of these behaviors uh, that, that we know are positive for the pups. Um, but also sort of on the other end of this, and I think this has been looked at more in the primate studies and also as as the primates are a little bit older, you know, the rat studies, this is on a time scale of like the first week of life, right? So really early. Uh, whereas in primates, a lot of the work has been sort of over the first year of life and, and what those separations might look like. Um, and there's been one group that finds right, these short separations, again, are actually beneficial um, beneficial to the to the offspring uh in ways you know that if it had been 
if you just completely separate them, like obviously that's bad, right? Um, so yeah, so that's sort of a super brief overview of the work that has been done. And so um, in dogs, there's really not that much research. And, and the research, a lot of the research that has been done was done sort of earlier, and it didn't then longitudinally follow any of the puppies. So like, you know, you can describe the behavior, that's great, we, we know what it looks like, but we don't know what effect that's having. Um, and so just recently, there's been a handful of studies uh, that have started to, to look at that, both in terms of um, even just, you know, eight week pup behavior, and then all the way out to, I think the, the longest is two years, but again, there's like two studies that have looked at that. <laughs> um, so yeah it's hard yeah. to follow for that long for sure yeah well and especially in dogs because yeah. it's on the scale of years <laughs> unfortunately well fortunately yeah yes. and because they end up um being in homes right like it's it's so much easier with the rodents where they're just they're in the lab and you can just sit there and watch them exactly exactly yes <laughs> yes all right so you you had this this backdrop um and then then you went to the seeing eye and studied it. So the first question that you asked was, can you even see any differences in maternal care in different dogs? Or are they all basically exactly? I mean, you didn't expect them to be all exactly the same, but the first thing that has to be done is to actually describe what are the differences that we see and, and how wide ranging are they? And and what what breeds were these dogs? Um, sure. Just so that we know how homogeneous the whole population was. So, um, it was, it's pretty homogeneous, but more heterogeneous than a lot of organizations in that they had German Shepherds, uh, and then also Labrador Retrievers, Golden Retrievers, and then most of them were crosses between the Labs and Goldens. Um, and all of the, the breeding happens at the station and the whelping also happens at the station. Um, so sort of divided into two sections. So you have the, the breeding side and then the whelping side. Um, and then they, they live there with their mom. And, um, so then, so how did it work? So did you set up a, a camera and video record? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so we had, uh, you know, tripods and camcorders. Um, and basically, uh, I would over the first three weeks of life, um, I would choose three days from each week and then do four 10 minute recordings during those days. So basically we would have about two hours of footage per week over those three weeks. Um, and we were able to follow 21 litters and all of the puppies from each of those litters. So it ended up being 138 puppies. Um, and yeah, we would, and I think it was between, what was it? It was, it was basically the daytime. So like 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. or around there. Um, and yeah, we just uh, have these video recordings. And then the fun part was we had, you know, <laughs> a million hours of video recording that, that we went through and watched and coded for the maternal uh, behaviors. And so they were um, time spent in proximity to the puppies. And the way that we operationalized that was actually, uh, a lot of the listeners are probably familiar with this, but when, the puppies whelped, they whelped into one of those like plastic kitty pools. <laughs> um, and then they would stay there for the first three weeks of life, which was nice because it meant that we had this proximity measure where basically if the mother was in the pool, she was in proximity, 
but there was also a larger pen that she could choose, you know, she wasn't being forced to be in the pool. So it was about her choice of where she was spending the majority of her time. Um, and so, you know, I think, again, you were talking about the variation in mothers. We for sure saw variation in mothers. And I think, for example, on that particular measure, like the, the mother that was the most in proximity was there about 90% of the videos compared to the lowest was probably 20% of the videos. And I'd say the the medium was like 50 or 60%, I think 55% of time spent in the pool. Wow. So, so you get a wide uh, variation, uh, which is good for the purposes of, um, you know, looking at what this then predicts. Uh, and so, so proximity was one of our measures we looked at licking grooming, just like in the rodent studies, uh, nursing. Um, and I, again, or I, I did differentiate between the different types of nursing. And by that, I mean the body position of the mother while nursing. Uh, so the most common, uh, would be when she was lying, um, laterally. So kind of on her side and her, the milk bar was open, <laughs> as you would say. And then there's ventrally, which is she's lying on her stomach as as well, but you know, a little more on ventral. Uh, and then vertical nursing, which would be either nursing from a sitting or standing position. Um, so we past studies have not differentiated between that. Uh, but I did partly because of the rodent literature, right? Because you have that arched back nursing. Uh, which is distinct from just normal nursing. And so, uh, and you, and again, you see variations. So I, I was interested in trying to capture that. Um, and the other behaviors were contact. So how much was she physically touching the puppies? And then um, finally, this sort of vigilance behavior uh, where the way that the CNI breeding station is set up is, uh, it's very, I think from a welfare perspective, it's really nice. Basically the, the dogs are kept together, but it's this circular space. And the, rather than, you know, a traditional kennel where it would be sort of like down the line. Uh, and the benefit of that, especially with shepherds, which as you know, are pretty vocal dogs, um, is that whenever anyone enters the area, all the dogs can see them. Um, so the hope is that <laughs> the barking is not as much as maybe it would be in some of these more traditional setups. But anyway, what that also meant is that um, when we were watching back these videos, there were also, you know, we were videoing throughout the day and we weren't, um, the one requirement was if we were videoing, we didn't want a human in with the dog, you know, because that would be distracting her potentially from her mothering. Uh, or lack thereof. Um, but you know, people are in and out just like their day-to-day -day lives. And so um, we would see that sometimes, and other dogs are in there as well. And so sometimes the mother would sort of be looking out into the, the larger room. Um, and again, we would code that and, and think of it as a sort of vigilance behavior. Um, so we end up with all of all of those measures that I just described, but it's sort of like, okay, now how do we <laughs> turn that into data, right? Into a number that we can then you know, start to explore. So um, basically we did principal component analysis, which is basically just fancy terminology. That means we're summarizing our data um, by giving each mother a single score. Um, and then uh, all of the maternal style behaviors as it ends up are highly correlated to one another. So they all load onto that one component. So in other words, mothers who are spending a lot of time with their puppies are also spending a lot of time nursing them, touching them, grooming them, 
displaying vigilance behaviors and vice versa. Um, so, I mean, that's a little simplistic, but, but basically what, that's what that is. So we can give them a single maternal behavior score. Um, and then once we have that score, we can sort of look at its properties and, and, and what does maternal style look like. Um, so the first thing that we noticed was that maternal behavior was stable over time. So like I said, we, we looked at them over three weeks and uh, we found that mothers behaved similarly to themselves across those three weeks. Um, and the other thing that we did with our measure, I should mention, so there, like I said, there's a handful of other studies uh, that have recently done the same thing where they've observed, you know, the behavior, the maternal behavior, and then tried to link it to later outcomes. And they, as well, were able to do principal component analysis and found a single principal component. So this is encouraging, right? You know, and this was in beagles, um, and another one was in German Shepherd military working dogs. So, so that's encouraging, right? That it seems that this is a thing in dogs, right? That you have this uh, maternal behavior that can be described this way. Um, but what we also did uh, is that we validated it um, by showing that it was related to other measures of maternal care. Um, so specifically, we collected uh, some salivary cortisol, uh, which is um, often used to look at stress levels in dogs and other animals. Um, and basically, our procedure was that uh, each night, a few hours after dinner, you know, so they wouldn't have the food residue in their mouth. Although I regretted this because they, a lot of them just weren't salivating very much because they'd already had their food. They're like, we know we're not getting more. But anyway, we, we made it work. Um, and so we would take a baseline measure. And then uh, our manipulation was that we would remove half of their litter for five minutes. Uh, and this was meant to be a slight stressor. Uh, nothing out of the ordinary. The, the puppies got weighed every day. So, you know, they're used to the puppies sometimes leaving, but, you know, potentially a a maternally stressful experience slightly uh, and then we would sample their or sample their saliva again to look at cortisol um, after you know 20 minutes after that event occurred uh, and so what we found first of all this was sort of interesting just the baseline cortisol before we even did the manipulation the dogs we found an association where the dogs that um, were I don't, the most nurturing mothers, let's say, had the highest levels of cortisol just at baseline, which was sort of interesting. Uh, but then also, what, after you remove their litter and put it back, that subsequent peak in cortisol, even when controlling for baseline, was still higher in these more mothery dams. Um, so, so we thought that was a good validation of our measure. Um, and then the other way that we did it was a behavioral experiment um, where basically I would wait for the mother to be nursing each week one day and I would kind of follow this set script where I would go in and I'd say hello <laughs> and just kind of just stand there for one minute and then I would sit there for one minute and looking at them and basically they could choose to interact with me or not but the idea is like oh here's this potentially inviting distraction like are you gonna you know stay and mother your puppies or are you gonna be like oh my gosh human drop everything um, and again, we find this nice association where uh, the moms who in real life are like the most mothery, right, as we know by our component, are also the ones during this little experimental manipulation that are less likely to leave their puppies and, and want to spend time with them. Um, so, that, so that was interesting. Uh, and then the other things that we looked at, people always ask me about this, and I, and I think because it's interesting, right, is so 
what are these factors that might be uh, playing a role in maternal care? So for example, everyone always wants to know about breed. Um, so obviously I can only speak to <laughs> the breeds at the CNI in this particular instance, but uh, we did find that Labrador retrievers had higher maternal behavior scores than the German Shepherds. Um, I'm not able to say anything about the Goldens, mainly because sample size issues that we didn't have um, as many straight golden retrievers in our in our study. Um, but um, yeah, so that was interesting. And then we also found an effect of litter size on maternal style, which is uh, perhaps not surprising, whereby the mothers of the larger litters um, display a lower quantity of maternal style. Uh, and this mirrors what is found in mice as well. And, I, you know, it's physically difficult for a mother of 10 to interact with each individual puppy at the same rate as a mother of two. And I would, I would think that tending to larger litters is likely more demanding and exhausting, right? So that might potentially lead the mother to spend less time with them. Uh, but, we, but we do see that association. Um, and then finally, the, the other thing that I think is really interesting and, and people are often interested in is this effect of parity. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, the number of litters that the mother has had before. Um, and there have been a few studies on this, and I think it's our study would agree with this as well, that the first time dams look different than uh, dams that have had multiple litters, uh, regardless of how many that might be. Um, and so basically we found that the first time moms showed higher levels of maternal behavior um, overall. Uh, the other study that I was looking at that has looked at this found kind of similar, but basically what they found was that the, the mothers that had been mothers before showed a lot of, you know, their behavior was very stable across time, whereas they found in their first time mothers, it was increasing over the weeks and then was like highest in that third week. Um, so yeah, so anyway, that that's what we found in terms of the demographic features. Although I should say they're not simply redundant with the maternal behavior component. Um, uh, so there's more than just these factors that are determining how a mother cares for her puppies and, you know, individual differences and all of that. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's easy to, to overemphasize and, and say that our findings predict everything, but they, they never do. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious, did you check differences in cortisol levels between the first time moms and the ones who'd been moms before? Oh, interesting. Um, hard to remember, right? But I just got to think that the first time moms were super stressed out by the whole experience. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, and it's, it's always so funny when like you see a first time mom whelp and she's like, what <laughs> just happened? Like, like what just happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what must be going through their heads? No, I, sh I, that is a great question. I could go back and look. I, I don't think we looked at that specific breakdown, but I mean, let me think about this though. If we, if we see that the I think probably yes, because just going by the fact that we know that the first time moms, based on what I just said, are the ones that um, are showing the highest levels of maternal behavior. And we also know the moms that have the highest level of maternal behavior have the highest levels of cortisol. Yeah, but I guess, well, I wonder if that's what's driving it. <laughs> They're like, yeah, that's know. a good question, right? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you, you would need larger sample sizes even to untangle mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. And I am sympathetic with how much dog TV you had to watch. I did that uh, for my <laughs> master's. I watched a lot of dog TV uh -huh. <laughs> um, to score behaviors. And I'm very sympathetic with how 
it is mind-numbing after a while. You start out being like, I get to watch dogs on TV. (laughs) After a while, you're like, oh, my God. No more, no more dogs. No more dogs sitting, looking puppies. Um, I notice, and it's really nice, I notice how careful you are not to um, put value judgments on the different types of maternal care. And it's really easy for us to say that the what you're referring to as the more mothery dogs or the higher levels of maternal care. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us to refer to that as good moms and the other ones as bad moms. Um, and I know that a lot of people in these fields of maternal effects um, emphasize <laughs> that we shouldn't think of it as good or bad mothering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if there's anything more you would want to have to say to that or how the different effects can be appropriate in different environments, maybe. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I agree with what you're saying that it's right it's hard to assign and I don't think we should assign value because I think I mean part of it even right might depend on your end goal right so like a good in quotes mother um for a certain working dog population might be different even for another working dog population um versus for a pet and it's it's like what what the goal is for the puppies right because I think I think too we can't really assign value sometimes I feel like one way that I do hear people assign value, and this is valid, uh, is they refer to a mother as a good mother if it's not a lot of work for them, <laughs> right? Like for the for yes. the humans involved, because obviously all of that makes sense. All of these dogs, the humans are pretty heavily involved. I mean, you know, on a sliding scale, I'm sure, but that's just the nature of it. And so, um, right. So, so I'm always interested because I'm like, I feel like we could definitely find that actually these moms were like you're the one that's having to go in and clean up all the poop and whatever, but it's like, actually then the puppies turn out great. So it's like, sorry, you're just going to have to do more work. <laughs> I don't know. But yes. you know, that's, that's one way of thinking about it. Um, but, but I think that's the point, right? There's, there's multiple different outcomes you could want. And based on that, the, the mothering, you know, you might think would be good or bad. Does that make sense? Would, would push you in one direction or the other, right? So it might mm-hmm. be, you might, it might be preferable for certain outcomes and less preferable for other outcomes, but that doesn't mean it's good or bad. Yes. And you might, right. It might be different among those or most likely is. So yeah. Yes. So I guess yes. that's why I am careful about it, but. <laughs> yeah, no, as you should be. I just wanted to call it out because um, it was clearly something that you had previously thought about, but I wanted to make sure that listeners who hadn't thought through that had the the chance to understand why you were using that language. Um, so, which also sort of sets us up for then the next question was, uh, what effects the different styles of Totally, right. And I think, honestly, once we talk about this, it might also become more clear why I'm not as, you know, assigning the value. So we had collected all of this um, maternal style data, and then uh, we were able to follow the puppies longitudinally um, until they had an outcome in the guide dog program. Uh, And we actually do find effects of maternal style all the way into adulthood. And so in some ways that just in and of itself is pretty awesome, right? Because on one hand, we know that early experiences are so important, but on the other hand, the pups are with their mothers for such a short period of their lives Um, And yet here we are seeing these effects up to two years later. Uh, So what are the effects? (laughs) Um, So first we looked at um, behavior when the dogs entered training. Uh, So this, they would have been around a year and a half um, around that. And 
they participate in what we call our cognitive and temperament testing. So it's basically a series of standardized games um, that we play with each dog. And it's supposed to give us a window into how they think, how they problem solve, how they react and recover all those sorts of things. Uh, and so we did find some associations. So uh, one, we found that the highly mothered dogs showed higher activity, activity levels in our isolation task and a quicker latency to vocalize during our novel object task. Um, and so both of those are actually potential signs of stress and anxiety. Um, and they were also worse at one of our cognitive problem solving tasks. So they took longer to solve it and they, perseverated at an unproductive solution, even when it wasn't yielding the result that they wanted. Um, so again, back to this valence discussion, this is maybe surprising, right? Because you're seeing, you think of mothering maybe normally as a good thing, and yet here are these dogs uh, showing outcomes that, at least for a guide dog, are kind of negative. <laughs> um, and then actually, when we look at overall outcome, we find a strong association where the puppies of the less involved mothers are actually more likely to go on and graduate as a successful guide dog. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's really surprising, particularly because it's exactly the opposite of what those rat studies found in terms of like confidence and cognitive yes. abilities. Yes. Um, so, and I, I actually talk about your studies in talks that I give about socialization in dogs and about maternal effects and stuff. And so I have my hypothesis for why this is, but do you have a hypothesis? It's probably a little more relevant than mine. I have multiple. I'd love to hear yours if you want to say, or I can give mine. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, I don't remember if I got mine from you or from the paper. I, I'm sure I'm sure it did not arrive out of my own brilliance, right? I'm sure I, I got it from somewhere, and it was probably either from talking to you, because, um, uh, by the way, Emily and I have, have known each other for a while, or, um, or from reading the paper. But basically, the, my hypothesis, my favorite hypothesis, is that you have this population of dogs that are so highly selected to be guide dogs, that it's possible that one of the things that you're selecting for is very high mothering. And so you have dogs that are, so many of them are such intense motherers that it's it's sort of too much and that there's actually a sweet spot. And that in the rats, it was easier to see the range, but in these dogs, it's maybe harder to see the range because they're all on one side of it and the rats are maybe more spread out. And so you maybe, maybe going too far in one direction is not good. And you, instead of being at a hundred percent, you want to be at 80%. And these dogs are maybe going from 70% to a hundred percent instead of 0% to a hundred percent. So that what looks like low mothering scores in these dogs compared to the rest of the world is maybe still high mothering scores. Um, and what looks like high in these dogs is too high, if that makes sense. Um, although what you said at the beginning of our talk today was that you saw quite a range. Um, so maybe that shoots that in the foot. I don't know. So what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, we, I, I, that was very well said. I like that. <laughs> and I agree with that. Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely right that we're only seeing like, they're just a little snapshot of this bigger range, or I like to think of it like I, I like to think of this in a lot of my work, this inverted U-shaped function, right? Where, where, again, there's like a sweet spot. And so, and I think too, in these rodent studies, um, 
again, speaking of ranges, but you, you truly have the range and there's no human intervention, right? They're just letting them do their thing. In the guide dogs, they're not going to let them get to that, you know, the like neglect, abuse, whatever, that part of the scale, right? The like really poor scale. And even, for example, if like the mother, um, you know, isn't spending enough time and the puppies aren't gaining weight, like they'll supplement the puppies, right? So like they're not ever going to let the puppies fall off on, on that end. Um, so, so basically you, like how I like to describe it is you can think of all of the mothers as adequate mothers, um, or I know we're not using balance, but good mothers, right? And so within, within good mothers, you can go too far, just like you said, or, um, but, but the, and then like, they're the, helicopter mothers, they're helicopter mothers, yeah. helicopter mothers, <laughs> exactly. But it's like, you can't go too far the other way because like, the CNI isn't going to let that happen. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I think that, I think that's a great way to think about it. And I, and again, I feel like, um, we're just missing that the other part of, of the scale because they're not letting it be there. Um, and again, I was talking earlier about these, um, primate studies and, that group um, that that uh, I think they are in squirrel monkeys. They they basically have the same or they have it's a slightly different hypothesis, but this idea that um, the lack of mothering for the, you know for the dogs that are are having the like less motherly mothers that that might be a little bit stressful for them, um, and that maybe that's actually not a bad thing, right? Especially for a working dog. So maybe that's almost like fostering some independence they're not having everything handed to them um so again so in the primate work the the analogy would be these short-term separations early on where it's basically like giving an animal a challenge and letting them prevail over it um and that's gonna that's gonna be good for them down the line even if in the short term it looks like oh you're not getting as much mothering um so it, there could be a little bit of that uh as well um i think the the other thing or, or there's some other hypotheses that are not necessarily mutually exclusive um so one could be uh that we know from the cortisol studies that these high mothering mothers um have higher stress levels and so and, and obviously the less mothery mothers have lower stress levels and so maybe having a more relaxed mom is better, right? Or like if the, I know I just said stress was good, but maybe the mom stress is bad. Like, I don't know. Yeah, no, I would love to pull out. I would love to see you redo the study with <laughs> only experienced mothers, right? Uh-huh. And just okay. get rid of that whole, oh. that whole confounder of the, um, the nulliparous mothers, the first time mothers. Right. Um, that would be really interesting. Was, yeah. Yeah. It'd also be interesting to look at how much cortisol came out in the milk. Right. Mm, so Yes. Right. Because they the, do have a direct line. Right. To, right. Right. So yes. if they're more stressed, maybe it's not even the mothering. Maybe that's having mm. this effect. Maybe it's the amount of cortisol that's coming through in the milk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When two researchers talk about a study. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that has always fascinated me that I've, I have not yet tapped into the looking at the actual milk, but I feel like that needs to be done. 
you know, because mm-hmm. it's so important. That would be, I, yeah, that would be really interesting. So, um, oh, which which actually brings me, so when we're talking about trying to piece apart the different bits of the picture, um, there is, we had a, a question from Michaela on Patreon asking about whether um, uh, dogs with a particular mothering style tended to produce puppies who went on to have the same mothering style. And I feel like that's um, trying to pick apart genetics um, versus Mm -hmm. environment. In this case, environment being what the person who raised you acted like. And so we know that 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 has been looked at in the rat studies. Um, So I thought maybe you could talk about that and whether you were able to look at it in the dogs. Yes, yes. Um, So so unfortunately, no, we have not looked at it in the dogs, um, mainly because we haven't been studying it long enough, or at least I haven't been studying the same population long enough. Um, so, but I mean, I think that would be fascinating, right? Because basically you have to study the dog and then wait at least two years for her off, one of her offspring to hopefully be picked as a breeder, which like, you know, most dogs are not picked as breeders. So they don't let you control that. They, they don't let, let me control, control that. I know. I know. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> It's probably for the best that I'm not in control of that, just probably. for the record. Just for the record. Um, but, but yeah, so we can look at research in other species, and it seems likely um, that that this is the case, that, you know, that the moms with the high mothering style are going to produce mothers with the high mothering style. But like you say, um, why? Like, is it the genetics? Is it the, the environment of it that they, you know, experience that? Um, or obviously could be both. Um, and so there are some studies that have looked at this. So like in the primate literature, one study found, um, that over 50% of macaques who received abusive parenting went on to display abusive parenting toward their own offspring. Um, luckily in dogs, I don't think abusive parenting is even a term that we would use. No, but some bitches do eat their puppies. So I have heard of that actually. Yes. Um, not that one's, that one's a little harder to study because they don't go on. <laughs> the outcome was poor. <laughs> but you could probably look at some of the surviving puppies and see how they did. So That's I don't true. know. Anyways, okay. <laughs> go on. Um, then, so this is a happier one. The levels of mother-infant contact in vervet monkeys uh, was best predicted by the mother's level of mother-infant contact as an infant, um, right? Uh, so that they, those were highly correlated. Um And then similarly in rodents, like we were talking about, this level of licking grooming that females demonstrate toward infants is highly correlated um, to the level of licking grooming that they receive from their own mother. And so interestingly in rodents, this actually does seem to be mostly environmentally mediated. And they can tease that apart through cross-fostering studies, uh, which is when, you know, the mom gives birth to her litter and then they take half of her pups and they put them on a different mom. And so you can uh, know that, okay, this is a high licking grooming mom. So I'm going to take her pups and I'm going to put them on a low licking grooming mom. And so then the question is, okay, so they genetically come from high licking grooming, but environmentally experienced low licking grooming, what are they going to look like as a mom when they grow up? And it turns out that they look like low licking grooming. They look like the experience that they had. Um, So, but Again, we have not done that study in dogs, so open question. No. In the rats, they um, just fascinating where they were able to see changes in part of the brain um, epigenetically. 
and they understand it super, super well, like exactly what's going on. And so hard to do that in dogs because you know, like cutting open puppy brains. I would yeah. not cut open a puppy brain, but I'm so desperate to know just to see. I mean, it's probably very similar. And they've seen similar things in in humans looking at um, humans who die of like car accidents versus humans who die by um, suicide. And they're mm. able to look and see the differences in their brains in that same area of the brain, the hippocampus, and the same mm. epigenetic changes. Um, so it's probably true in dogs as well. Like if it's true in mice and humans, it's probably true in dogs. Um, so it's so cool. But so I'm still waiting for the Star Trek scanner that will let me <laughs> scan a dog's brain and be able to say what is the methylation status of, um, you know, of the glucocorticoid receptor gene in the hippocampus right, right here and have it tell me without me having to cut the dog's brain open. But until then, we yeah. just guess. <laughs> we just guess and but, study uh, rodents. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so while we're on Michaela's question, she also asked actually if having a C-section affected mothering at all. Did you, were you able to look at that? Oh, yes. Um, so no, (laughs) I was not able to look at that, but some, I think it's just, uh, I guess fortunately rare. Um, oh wait, no, sorry. I did look at that, (laughs) but it's super, super anecdotal. I mean, I didn't look at it in the paper, but I went and looked, um, at the data. Um, and so... Let's see. I the sample size is low, as I said, because um, just basically consider this an anecdote. Uh, but of the twenty-one mothers that we studied in the maternal style study at the scene, I three of them delivered by uh, cesarean section. And so I think what you might hypothesize, right, is that, or what you might worry about with the C-section is that maybe the maternal instincts aren't kicking in uh, because, like, you know, the natural birthing process wasn't allowed to occur, and like. And when the mom wakes up, it's sort of like what just happened, even more so than when she's naturally giving birth. Um, but so we, um, when I look at those three mothers, they were all either average or higher on all of our maternal behavior dimensions that we measured. Uh, so, you know, anecdotal, but it, it doesn't appear to be that they're like, oh, they just quit on, you know, mothering never kicked in. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, like everything, there's probably individual variation, etc. But that is a super interesting question um, that unfortunately just our sample size didn't let us tease apart as much as... Yeah, you need a bigger sample size, man. Go back and do do watch more dog TV. Uh, well, that's cool that I'm glad that she asked that question because I'm guessing because it's anecdotal, it didn't make it into the paper. So we wouldn't have. Yeah, no. We wouldn't have known. So <laughs> here on the podcast and nowhere else. Um, it's true. Yeah. So, oh, so I, I mean, I keep hoping that more people will will do these studies. Um, you you did a little bit more analysis. You told me um, and I think this paper is not published yet. Uh, where you were looking at some of the behavioral testing that is done. Yeah, so that, that paper is published. Um, oh, it is. Great. In Animal Cognition. Um, and so that was, it. the maternal care did not enter into it, um, but we basically, like I said, when the dogs entered training, we did a series of what we always refer to as cognitive and behavioral tasks. And, you know, in our minds, we're like, we categorize them that way, right? So if it's a problem-solving task, we're like, this is a cognitive task. Um, Whereas if it's, you know, you open the umbrella and how does the dog react? That's a temperament task. And so what what we were basically asking is, 
is that the case? <laughs> um, and so, or are they kind of more intertwined than that? Um, and what we find is, is that they are, <laughs> right? So if you try to, um, again, using this sort of principal component or factor analysis technique, you can basically either force the data, for lack of a better word, into the categories that you think it should be. And then you can look at sort of, okay, how does my model fit? Is it, um, what's what's the validity like, right? Is it, is it um, are these components then corresponding to things that we think they should be? Or you can have this sort of more bottom-up method where you're basically like, here's the data, how, how do the chips fall um, using the statistical model? And uh, when you do it that way, the results are actually much stronger. And what you see is that um, different tasks are clumping together, even though we might think of one as cognitive and one as temperament, right? That And, it, and it, I think intuitively, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So um, for example, if you give a dog a problem-solving task, but they're kind of a very like cautious dog and they're like they touch it and it scares them they're probably not going to do very well on it not necessarily because they couldn't have figured it out but it's like their fear is holding them back or you know so so those things kind of go together in interesting ways and i think the point of that paper is just that when we study dogs it's important to include both types of tasks um, if we really want to get the whole picture um, and also to continue to look to see how these things are interacting. Um, yeah, we as humans really like to categorize things. <laughs> and I think as we, um, as science progresses and, and we learn more and more, I think we're starting to realize that we should not be categorizing so much. I like your phrase of letting the chips fall where they may is that... <laughs> A lot of times in science, it's important for us to just be like, let's just see what the analysis says and not put things into groups. Yeah. Something that I kind of like about the this work with assistance dogs um, is when we, you know, often we do these tasks and we're like, yep, we're studying memory. We're studying this. And it's like, are we? Hopefully, maybe. I don't know. But at least with this work, we can still... Um, you know, it's still a task that can be repeated. And if it has interesting findings, you know, we can go and see like, okay, dig deeper. What is it we were actually studying? But regardless, it's like, oh, whatever it is, it's important. <laughs> and we know how to look at it now. So yeah, someday we'll fully understand how the brain works. And then <laughs> we'll be able to understand exactly what's going on with all of those things. But until then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, until then. Until um, then. So yeah, so what are you what are you doing now? So you finished your PhD doing mm -hmm. that stuff with the seeing eye and yes. you hinted that you had ended up at Canon Companions for Independence. Yes. So I am a postdoc, postdoctoral researcher, whatever you call it. Um, and so basically I am half at the University of Arizona uh, at the Arizona Canine Cognition Center with Dr. Evan McLean and half at Canine Companions for Independence uh, with their research team. And what that looks like practically is that I live, I like to say I live at the field site. <laughs> so I live in Northern California. Um, and I go to work every day at Canine Companions because that's where all of our study subjects are. Uh, and so these are not guide dogs. They are um, assistance dogs, so service dogs, uh, as well as hearing dogs um, and uh, PTSD service dogs. They've just started placing um, and facility dogs. And those are dogs uh, that they place with able-bodied people, but then they take them to their place of work. So whether that's a courthouse or a schoolroom or um, 
like a therapy setting um, and then they they use their dogs in that way um, so the exciting thing is that we have started a new maternal style study um, which I'm or I have started it's been two years now it was supposed to be finished by now quite honestly but um, but it's it's exciting so in the January of 2018 we received funding from the AKC Canine Health Foundation to study the effects of maternal style on future puppy behavior, uh, which if that sounds familiar, it's because uh, honestly, it's it's a replication study in a lot of ways, which is exciting because we don't have enough of those, you know, um, and especially in dogs, uh, it can be difficult. So, but, so it's a replication, but I'm also hoping uh, it's an improvement, <laughs> right? Or we're, we're looking at even more. Um, so we have a bigger sample. Uh, and some methodological additions that I'm excited about. So we are recruiting, so at the CNI we had 23, here we're recruiting 60 dams um, and 240 puppies. So we ended up at the CNI, every puppy that was born for, of a study dam was included. Here we're only doing four from each litter um, and that's because we did a power analysis and figured out that gives you more bang for your buck. Um, so we basically randomly choose four puppies from each litter. So we'll end up with 240 total. Um, and so the questions that we're asking, very similar. First of all, uh, what do we find in this different working dog population? So like, yes, they're all working dogs, but technically the job that they're doing is different um, and theoretically is gonna require slightly different temperament, maybe different problem solving skills. Uh, so basically I would predict that, you know, you would think that the behavior should be similarly affected by maternal style, regardless of what job you're being groomed for. However, there because there's not this perfect overlap of characteristics um, found in the best guide dogs versus the best service dogs, it could very well be, again, back to this valence thing, that, you know, the ideal mothering phenotype is gonna look different between these two populations, so. We'll find out, hopefully soon. Is it more breeds as well? Less breeds. So it's oh, it's, it's everything but the German Shepherd. So it's Labs, Goldens, and mainly Crosses. I was hoping with the, because sometimes the hearing dogs are like little. Yeah, they used to be, what were they, like Corgis or something back in the day? But now they are yeah. also the same. Sorry. Those big things. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. Well, I'll save up my money and send you some so you can analyze the cortisol in the milk before you're done. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. We did not. We did not milk the dogs. But so so okay. So we. The other thing that I wanted to do with the study was to look more in depth at individual differences. So I didn't mention this, but in our first study, the the maternal style score for the mother was assigned to each of her puppies. Like we were not able to individually distinguish the puppies. This time around, we we worked really hard and we can. So they each have, it's very high tech. They each have these Velcro collars that are different colors. It's actually based, um, Canine Companions does this normally. It's based on their birth order, right? So puppy number one is red, puppy number two is blue. And then I have meticulously in Sharpie drawn patterns on unique patterns on each of them, right? So it's like red stripes, blue chevron. Uh, and then that way, what it means is even in infrared light, we can tell the puppies apart. So now not only are we looking just during the daytime hours, but basically 24 hours nighttime as well. Cause you know, that could make a difference. Um, so, and then the other thing, which 
we didn't actually even talk about this uh, in the results of the other study, but maybe we can talk about it now. Um, so we found that, like I said, maternal style affected um, outcome. But interestingly, if you looked at just vertical nursing, like if you pulled that out, um, you actually saw the opposite effect where mothers that nursed the most from a sitting or standing position, their puppies were really successful, um, you know, sort of in contrast to. And, and that also plays along with this idea of, if you think about it for a puppy, the vertical nursing is more challenging, right? It's not just being given to them. They sort of have to like scramble and get to it. And so maybe, again, that's like a little bit of a challenge for them. And that's, that's beneficial down the road. But like huge caveat, the, the vertical nursing is a very rare behavior. So we did not sample it the way that you would want to, uh, and, and most likely missed a lot of it. So this time around, uh, I've specifically built in, we're basically doing the same thing, right? These like 10 minute, um, vocal samples throughout the first three weeks, but I built in a day every week where we just do a 24 hour recording. And then we go back and only code that for vertical nursing, which is how you would want to do it for a rare behavior. Um, so I'm hoping that will give us more insight uh, into into that behavior as well. And we can see if we can replicate that finding or, or what that looks like. Um, and I, I apologize for this, but now I'm also going to give you another thing that I wish that you had done. <laughs> oh, you should no. have put accelerometers on the puppies so that you could see if they moved more. Because I'm thinking for vertical nursing, oh. they have to start recruiting their muscles sooner to like oh, jump and reach to get at the nipples, right? So I put yeah, accelerometers on them. So if they got a couple days more of exploring outside the nest because they were moving earlier, that could be part of... We track when their eyes open, which is not oh. the same thing, but like, I yeah. may... Uh, yeah. Yeah, we did not. We actually for a while had whistles on the mothers. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have a lot of data on that, but then the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 moms did not because um, whistles stopped supporting them. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, but anyway, so that'll, yeah. Whistle for people, for people who don't know, by the way, whistle is a GPS caller, but it's also an accelerometer, so it can track yes. motion. It's like a Fitbit for dogs. <laughs> yes, it is a Fitbit for dogs. <laughs> um, and then, so the other, um, or one of the other things we're doing with this study is a more um, in-depth look at how maternal style is affecting the offspring. So in the first study, we looked at, uh, you know, behavior and cognition when they turned into training and outcome in the program. And we'll certainly look at those things again. Um, but this time we're also looking at stress responses and hormone levels, right? Because we know from the rodent literature that that is definitely affected. Um, so basically what that looks like is me collecting fecal samples um, at six weeks. <laughs> and then uh, we're also able to get oxytocin at eight weeks um, from a blood draw uh, because Canine Companions uh, collects blood from the puppies for DNA purposes. Um, so we can also, um, you know, process it in a, in a way that we can get oxytocin. Um, and then we cognition test the puppies at eight weeks, which has been really fun and frustrating at times. <laughs> um, but, you know, same sort of thing, these, these both cognition and temperament tests all roll together. <laughs> um, and then obviously, like I said, the outcome in their, in the program, and it's a different program this time. So, so it'll be interesting 
succeed. Oh, that's great. I'm going to look forward to that. So what's your status now? You guys are, I'm guessing, scoring all those videos? (sighs) Yes. Yeah, if anyone wants to, hey, all the listeners, if you want to watch Puppy TV, now that Jessica has downplayed it, it's actually quite fun. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we are definitely in the process of coding, wading through, I mean, even gosh, just like getting, you know, compressing the videos, getting them in the format. Like, I feel like I've spent years of my life already. Um, but yeah, so we're doing that and actually the, you know, COVID fires, blah, blah, blah. We, um, knock on wood have recruited all 60 of the moms. Three of them are pregnant, but are about, you know, will whelp in December and then all goes well, then we'll be done with data collection in February, hopefully. So, um, yeah. And then, and then we'll be looking at it. Um, and I should say the, the other, the one other piece of this study that I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I was just so interested because I mean, part of, part of, um, what would be really helpful if we can identify, right. a, A phenotype that is is gonna produce the kind of puppies that we would want in these different contexts um would be well how do we know what kind of mom a dog is gonna be like and can we figure that out before she's even had puppies which maybe not but um what we have been doing is is collecting um some hormone measures on the dams pre-pregnancy as well as you know, they also go through this cognitive and temperament testing. Uh, so we can look to see if there's any sort of associations, you know, personality wise or, or her home, her hormone profile that might predict the type of mom that she would be. So stay tuned for that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we could do it genetically, but we're going to take thousands of these moms to, to find the relevant. We need to find a way to get the phenotype in a way that's not as labor intensive. Right. Well, so I have this fantasy that with the Functional Dog Collaborative, eventually it will so start out by providing lots of support to breeders, but then be able to sort of loop that into research in a useful mm. way. So I, I have this vision of the citizen science approach where around the country, maybe we have a protocol where we explain to people how to video record it and then they could upload that to Mm -hmm. YouTube and then maybe we could train people to look at it. Um, So I feel like we could start getting some decent sample sizes that way. Yeah. And more breeds, more breeds. more breeds, yeah, yeah. Um, So that could be a really, a really fun thing. And, and you, you could organize it because I don't (laughs) have the time to organize it. So what, what's your, what's your plan going forward? You're a postdoc, which is a temporary position. Um, which direction are you going after this? Are you going to stay at CCI? Are you going to go be a full-time researcher? Uh, great question, right? I would, <laughs> Do also, you know? I would also like to know. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I, I think my goal is definitely to continue in academia and, and I plan to continue conducting research as long as I can, right? Um, so in addition to the maternal style research, we have a lot of exciting projects in the pipeline. Um, so... One thing that I'm excited about, a lot of my research, you know, as we've covered today, focuses a lot on this early developmental period in in terms of behavior and cognition. But um, we've recently begun collaborating with the Dog Aging Project, which is based out of the University of Washington. Well, my laboratory's collaborating. They are so big. We're collaborating with them as well. Yes, exactly, which is super fun. And, And basically what this gives us the opportunity to do is look at how cognition changes 
over time and what it looks like on the other end of the lifespan, um, which, which will be nice, nice to see. But um, yeah, so just, I don't know what my plan is, but I hope it involves lots of research because that's what I love to do. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so too. There's so much amazing dogs research going on right now. Yes, yes, it's exciting. So, um, so if if people wanted to get in touch with you, or is there is there a place you would want to send people to learn more about all of this stuff? I totally get it if sharing your email address on a podcast is not something because you know some people are like, oh, I'm trying to sell my services, so I'm happy to do that. So, but or you could tell people where they could go to learn more about CCI, or but if people wanted to to dig more into some of this stuff, what would your recommendations sure. be? Um, so I have a website and you can probably, actually, I know you can find my email there, uh, but it is emilyebray.com, just my name. Um, CCI also has a website. I believe it is cci.org. Um, and so, and they do have a section on their website about our science and research. I think that's one of the things that I love about Canine Companions is that we have a research department, um, and that is not common (laughs) in for a service dog organization. Um, and I'm also on Twitter. Uh, I believe my handle is Dr. Emily Bray, but it's like D-R, if that makes sense. I will verify that with you and I will put it in the show notes. Okay. So that people can easily find you. Oh, perfect. Yes. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you having me. (laughs) Hey friends, some of you have asked how to support the podcast. So we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing the podcast. And in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Sarah Espinosa Socal. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the Functional Dog Collaborative, check out functionalbreeding.org. Enjoy your dogs.